So this morning, we're going to be talking about the one true God. And most of you know, if you've been here for a while, I got saved while I was working in an electronics factory. And part of my job there was I was kind of a floater. I got to bounce around to various departments. And one day I came to work and they said, well, you're going to go and work in a um, testing and repair area. And I got teamed up with a woman named Angie. Angie was going to the UW Parkside um, going for a business major, but if you've ever been to college, you know they make you take a bunch of classes that have nothing to do with the real reason you're going to college. They, go, they do this because they think you're going to turn out to be a well-rounded individual then. Well, one of the things that she had to take was a philosophy course. And in this philosophy course, they really um, started with the premise of Frederick Nietzsche. He was a famous French philosopher. And Nietzsche, um, one of his most famous quotes was God is dead, and we killed him. And so she kind of approached the whole God thing and the whole Christianity thing just like that. She knew I was one of the resident Christians at Manutronics, and so she had a lot of questions for me about that. And one of the challenges I faced during that time of working with Angie is I had to turn around and now discuss these principles. I was still a fairly new Christian, you know, and I'm discussing these principles at a college level now. And I was, I, you know, as I said, I was fairly new, and it really encouraged me to become something called an apologist for the Christian faith. Now, when we say apologist, we're not talking about apologizing for something. We're talking about being able to defend an idea or a principle in a very educated and very sound and very reasonable and logical way. And that's hopefully what I'm going to do for you today. And the entire few days that Angie and I worked together, we could boil down the discussion that we had to do two basic questions. And those will be the basis of what we're going to talk about this morning when we talk about the one true God. The two questions are, does God exist? And if he exists, what is he like? And the second question is, if he exists, what does he expect from us? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. I thank you, Father, for this series. I because I know most people are either too afraid or too embarrassed or they really don't know what they don't know, so they don't know the questions to ask. So I thank you, Lord, that you have put this series in my heart to bring, that we can answer some of these questions so that everyone here can become that kind of apologist that can give an answer for the hope that they have. Father, I ask that you bless this time this morning, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start this morning with quoting Romans 1 to set the stage for answering that first question, does God exist? Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is made, so that people are without excuse. And one of the arguments that Angie was making trying to disprove the necessity for God or trying to disprove that God even existed was that quote from Frederick Nietzsche, that God is dead and we killed him. And what Nietzsche was trying to say, if, I don't know how much you guys read philosophy, but what Nietzsche was trying to say is that mankind has evolved to the point now where we don't need an external religion to rein in our, our evil impulses. 
Now keep in mind that Nietzsche was saying this in the 18th century. He hadn't even seen World War I or II yet. And he was claiming that we didn't need a religious system or a God to help us not be evil. The irony is, is she believed in the Big Bang Theory. She believed that an explosion of dense matter started the entire universe. And as I said, the irony of that time is that we were having a discussion while we were working on a project called Adtel. Adtel makes circuit boards for satellites. So as we're sitting there working on circuit boards for satellites, we're discussing creation. And I used what I was holding in my hand to counter her argument. I said, Angie, do you want me to believe the Big Bang? Because the Big Bang would be like the circuit board I'm holding if a big explosion happened in a desert that somehow this fiberglass board appeared in my hand with the copper circuitry running all the way through it, in it, through it, around it, with the resistors and the transformers and the integrated circuits and everything that makes it up, that it became a coherent device that will do a specific function. That's what you're asking me to believe right now, by, by believing in this cosmic evolution. I said, not only that, but in the cosmic evolution model, you're saying that nothing exploded and became everything. So not only do I have a circuit board that came from nothing, but it also has a purpose and a specific function. I said, that takes a lot of faith. You're saying that nothing exploded and created everything. And to me, it sounds like you're spending thousands of dollars on an education to retell a story that's already been told. But that's exactly what's being taught in many of our colleges now and why many of the children that we send off to these colleges come back to us as at least functional atheists, that through their actions they don't believe what they were taught as children in the church anymore. But, so how do we know there is a God? What if tomorrow, if you're at work or, or at the store and you meet an Angie, how are you going to be able to, to answer the questions that they might have? Well, the fact that you are sitting here right now, aware of your existence, is signals the fact that you exist. And if you exist, then you have to question where you came from. Now, you can believe the Big Bang that you came from nothing, and therefore your life has no purpose, or you can believe the biblical account that you are a created being. The Bible in Isaiah chapter 1 says that God asks us to use our reason. He, comes, he says in Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together. He gave you higher thought for a reason. Our ability to think abstractly, our ability to problem solve and reason out problems is what makes us different than any other creature on the earth. I always use the example of a dog and a pole. You tie a dog out in the yard and there's a pole there, they wrap themselves around the pole, what happens? They sit there and howl until you unwrap them from the pole. They can't even figure out how to get back out from around that pole. Job 32.8 tells us that it is the spirit within a man and the breath of the Almighty that gives us our understanding and reason. It's part of the Imago Dei, that God stamp that is on each human soul ever created. When God said, breathe life into us, that spirit, that higher reasoning, all of that was breathed into us also. If we are created, that means you're a creator. 
And since we're going with the premise that we are created beings and that there is a creator, we have to ask the question, well, who is the creator? And what is this creator like? Now, I'm going to pause right here for just a little bit of context and explanation. I don't know if you know this, but we have a podcast. And believe it or not, hundreds of people listen to this podcast every year. So I have to just pause for these people because of the political environment. I have to just say one or two things, and it will help you also because it might be thrown back in your face. So, God the Father is a spirit. As a spirit, he does not have a physical gender. There is a variety of reasons for God being referred to in a masculine way in the Bible. So when I'm referring to God, I'm going to refer to him as a he because that's how the Bible describes him, as a he, as a father, as a, a masculine figure. If you want to know more about this, you can ask it during our question and answer time or shoot me an email at pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. And one more clarification, from now on when I refer to God, I refer to God as revealed in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, God the Father of Jesus. We'll briefly touch on God's triune nature in a moment, but I don't want to get bogged down in the Trinity because that's going to be a later message. So we've established that God is creator. Let's look at some of the other attributes that describe and make up this God that we serve. The first is God is knowable and wants to be known. In the opening scripture from Romans 1, we saw that God's existence is made obvious by anyone looking at the orderliness of creation. Rain goes, falls down, it doesn't go up. Things, if I drop something right now, it's going to fall to the ground because gravity is going to work the same way everywhere on this planet and everywhere in the cosmos that we know of. Um, gravity is going to work the same way. There's incredible orderliness in the universe and that points to design. Humanity really doesn't discover anything through the study of science. What we do is simply uncover what God has had in effect for thousands of years. When, so when somebody says, well, I discovered this, well, no, nah. God, God was there thousands of years before you took your first breath. That's, that's how I look at science anyway, is just seeing how God does things. And that amazes me somehow, or amazes me a lot of times. In Paul 17, 24, Paul is speaking to the people in Athens, Greece. And he said that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men to inhabit the whole earth, and he determined their appointed times and boundaries of their lands. Verse 27, God intended that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That is why God makes the orderliness of creation so obvious that it has to have a creator. And that's the summary. God is made known through his creation. So let's look at some of the other, things, some of the other ways the Bible talks about God and what he is like. And I'm going to go through quickly go through a list of God's attributes, and I'm going to touch on some a little heavier than others. The first one is that God is self-existent. God is the creator, the sustainer, and the anchor of all of existence. 
In Colossians, it talks about Jesus being that creation is actually held together through his spirit. Remember how God revealed himself to Moses. He said that I am that I am. And for years, I thought God was being a little snarky there. I thought he was pretty much just like being a parent with a, who's frustrated at their kid who says, just because I said so. That's not what he is saying at all. He is saying that I am in everything you see. And he was being very profound with Moses. Another way that you can look at God is that God is infinite. That means he is unlimited in his being and unlimited in his perfection. The infinite immensity of God means that God is not limited, confined, or bound, or enclosed by space or limited by any facet of his creation except by which he self-limits. God does self-limit himself. An example of that, you have free will, right? You have free will to sit here and listen to a sermon, or you could get up and walk out. You have a, you have a choice in that. God is not going to force you down into a chair to listen to a sermon. You have a free will. So God self-limits himself in when it comes to things like our free will. The next one is that God is eternal. That means he has no beginning and he has no end. Eternity with God is one now. And to be honest, when I was making this message, I was struggling with how much I wanted to explain this because this is going to be this kind of thing that makes your brain go like this. But the concept of eternity deals with another concept called time. Time is a created essence. It's a created thing. It's not just a byproduct of human existence. And the Bible repeatedly indicates that time is under God's sovereign control. We also have science telling us about the nature of time through Einstein's famous theory of relativity. Remember, E equals MC squared? This proves that time can be sped up or slowed down relative to the speed you are going in relationship to something else. Let me give you an extremely simplified example, and I hope I don't lose you here, but light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second, or 186,000 miles a second, whichever way you want to look at it. So if you send a light beam right now from the sun and aim it at Saturn, it takes 60 days to get to Saturn. That also just shows you how vast just our solar system is. How, so if you jump into a spacecraft and get it to go to the speed of light you'll have 60 days pass on your spacecraft. But because of the way time warps at light speed, 1,600 years will have passed on Earth. It's actually a little more complicated even than that, but that's what the theory of relativity explains. Now, the takeaway for all this mind-blowing stuff is this. Because time can be affected by outside sources, that puts it into a category of created things. Just like I can take water, put it on a stove, and boil it, I can affect something within creation that makes it a created thing. Time is a created thing. That means that when we go to heaven, we exist in the eternal now. And now I see everybody's like, what? Trust me, that's the truth. Is your mind blown yet? The next one. God is spirit. We touched on this earlier. God the Father is immaterial, meaning he has no, no matter, no physical body. He's invisible to our human eyes on this side of eternity, 
but he is alive and he is a person. And that's very, very important for us to understand. God is a person and therefore we have to treat him as a person. He's not just the force. He's not some vague spiritual influence. He is a person who exists as a spirit. So as a person, he possesses self-consciousness, self-determination, a mind, a will, emotions. You can grieve God. You can make him angry. You can also love him and have him love you back. He is a person. In that sense, just like you and me. God is one. It means that God is undivided and indivisible. God does not exist in parts, nor can he be broken down into various parts. God is one and only one God. The Jewish statement of faith is something that they... uh, a Hasidic Jew or an observant Jew will say every single morning when he wakes up, and it's found in Deuteronomy 6.4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that leads us to the next attribute that's going to seem like I'm about to contradict this attribute, is that God is also triune. It means he exists as three distinct persons known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let me explain to you why the Shema, which is this statement of faith, why that points to it. If you say it in Hebrew, Shema Israel, Shema Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, what that says is those two words within the Shema point to God being one God in multiple persons. Elohim, or the Eloheinu, is a plurality in a singular form within Hebrew language. An English example of this would be legal. If I say legal, you immediately think of multiple different things. You think of law, you think of lawyers, you think of courtrooms. You think of a whole bunch of stuff located within that single term legal. And that's what Elohim or Eloheinu mean in the Hebrew, that there's a whole lot within that one word. Echad means compound unity. It's like saying Lambeau Field in October contains many, many people but most of them are all singing and cheering and and everything for the same reason, to see the Packers win. Those two words point to the triune nature of God even before the doctrine of the Trinity was formally introduced to the Christian church, that God was at least more than one person. And honestly, you can only accept this by faith. I can't really explain it much more, at least this morning. I'll We have a whole sermon that's going to deal with this later in a later message. We'll just stop that there for now and go on to the next thing. God is omniscient, which means that he is all-knowing. That means he knows all things that are actual, all things that are possible, in the past, the present, and the future perfectly and from all eternity. And we've already established God exists tomorrow, today, in the past. He exists throughout the entire timeline That's, by the way, why he can give you prophecy, because he's already seen it happen. This is an important distinction that because God has already seen it happen, that doesn't mean that that is the only thing, or that doesn't mean that he caused it to happen. Because if that is the case, then that means God is guilty for sin, and we can't have that, because that contradicts with another part of his nature, which is that he is holy, and we'll get to that in a moment. God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. By that, it means that God is able to do whatever he wills. If he wants to do it, he can do it, as long as it doesn't go against his nature. 
He always exercises his divine power and harmony with his other with his essence, his attributes, and his perfections. God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. Because God is infinite and immense, he is present everywhere and in every time. And that's both a comfort to us that we're not going to walk in tomorrow and God may not be there. That's a very comforting that God has already seen everything that's going to happen in my life, every way I'm going to mess up, and yet he still called me. He still saved me. He still sustains me. Very comforting, but it's also a warning. You can't hide from him. You think you're doing something in the dark and away from everybody else? He's there. Psalm 139, I encourage you to read it. God is immutable, which means that he is unchanging. God is unchangeable in his essence, his nature, and his attributes. That means we can't just tell God, God, you just need to relax and let people live. He can't. He is unchangeable. You can't change God and still have him be God. The same God that said, let there be light in Genesis, is the same God that is described in the book of Revelation. He did not change. He did not get saved in the New Testament. He did not become the kinder, gentler God. He is the same God. And that God is holy. Holy means that God is separated completely from and exalted above all of his creatures. And he's totally separate from evil and sin. And that's very important here. A very important point for us to understand is that God is the authority of what is sin and what is evil. Not us. Not our culture. Not Hollywood. Not our universities. Not the latest celebrity that gets up and and claims that this is okay. God has a final say on what is right and true. I say this because even the most intelligent, smart, educated people among us have only a minuscule understanding of true reality. If you consider everything that God has to know from the, the exact weight and placement of every drop of sand or every grain of sand on the seashore or the exact speed of some distant star hurtling through the universe or what thoughts going through Pastor Roger's head right now. He knows all of that at the same time. Compared to what you and I know, it's not even close. Therefore, we have to trust him to tell us what is right. And that's something that, that's one of the main reasons that we rebel, is that we want to think that we're right. But the right view of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God leads us to the right view of sin. Next, God is truth, that God's knowledge, declarations, and representations eternally conform to reality. One of my favorite sayings, you hear me say this a lot, is that truth is reality as seen through the eyes of God. It's taken from the Truth Project. Everything that proceeds from God is true, and it can be trusted. Next, God is righteous and just. Because of who God is, being holy... He demands perfection. He must punish sin. And he must do so without partiality. He can't let somebody get away with something and then slam somebody down over here. He, he 
judges sin without any partiality. He does not play favorites. God's justice is accurate, inescapable, severe, and fair. Ultimately, though, for us as Christians, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, God's justice was satisfied through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So our righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Next, God is sovereign. God has all rights and all prerogatives to act however he wants in keeping with the perfections of his nature. God is not going to come down and ask permission from anyone here to do something. God rules and reigns sovereignly over all of his creation. He is a king. All of us who have raised young children are sometimes faced with the question from these children, why? April, do your kids ask why ever? All the time. time. Yeah. And a lot of the time we get frustrated and we say, because I said so. You may ask God why here. His answer is going to be just like us talking to a three-year-old, because I said so. Because I love you. Because I know more than you do. Because you are looking at life like a three-year-old. I am looking at it like a senior citizen who has lived an entire life. I know what's best for you. And because I love you, I am going to tell you no in that circumstance. Because ultimately, it will lead you down the wrong path and cause you harm. And if that bothers you to be referred to as a spiritual three-year-old in comparison to God, then you have the wrong view of God. Next, God is gracious. God shows kindness and goodness to those who do not deserve it. Ways to describe God's grace is that grace is God's infinite generosity. Grace brings salvation. Grace, Grace teaches us how to live. God is gracious and shows grace. The next thing is God is love. God's love is defined by its characteristic and demonstrations. Again, we need to understand God's definition of this word love. God's love does not change or violate his other attributes, in particular, his justice or his holiness, or his immu- immu- uh, him being immutable and unchanging. Some aspects of God's love. God's love is unconditional. God's love draws us into a personal relationship with himself. God's love extends to the entire world. It never stops. It never changes. The ultimate demonstration of how much God loves every one of us is seen as through Christ dying on the cross. And there is nothing that can come between God's love and the believer. The love of God is the greatest driving force for the church in existence right now. The love of God is infinite. You can read more about that in the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Next, God is good. That means by his very nature and constitution, he is upright, honorable, and desiring to bless us. God is merciful. Because God is compassionate and good, he does not desire to inflict upon us what we deserve. God is faithful. He's always true to his word, and therefore you can always trust what he says. God is long-suffering. And if you are a parent, you know what that means. God bears provocation and rebellion from us for a long, long time. 
much longer than most of us would tolerate from somebody. God is also jealous. That sounds like a negative, but it's not. Because of his great love for us, God has a passion that arises when our affections are placed on something that is going to draw us away from him. Jealousy may sound like an evil thing, but in this case, it's a sign of his love for us. His jealousy is protective of the relationship that he wants to have with you and me. And this last attribute that I'm going to go over this morning is the most serious for our eternal destiny. And that is that God is a God of wrath. God has a holy and just indignation and hatred of sin and therefore will execute punishment on the sinner. The reason God is angry at sin is because sin will always lead to suffering, death, and left unchecked separation from him forever. He loves you enough not to let you go down that path. Or that path. For us as Christians, that anger was poured out on Jesus as our substitute. That's what we celebrated today with communion. That through believing and following Jesus' teachings, we have forgiveness of sin. We have restora restoration of our relationship with God. However, if we choose to continue with our sin and our rebellion, maybe not right away, but if it's left unchecked, it will progress and it will end in eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Therefore, God's Jealousy and his wrath against sin is also protective. That's a brief overview of who God is. Now what does he expect of us? That part's actually pretty easy. God expects us to believe what he says and then to obey and follow it. Every single mess humanity has ever caused has been because they refused to do this very one thing, to believe what the word of God is, that it is actually true. And apart from Jesus, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he put it this way in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Solomon said, Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And of course, you and I, we're going to mess that up, aren't we? Probably ten times at least before we lay our head on our pillows this evening. And that's why God created a way for us to be saved. And that way is through the belief and surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's football season. We're going to see this sign in the stands if, you're, if you watch the NFL. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so the world may be saved through him. 
So if you are here this morning and you have never surrendered to Jesus, you're in danger, friend. And I don't say this to get your hackles up. I don't say this to, to make you angry. I say this because I love you enough to speak the truth. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you're headed to a very bad place. And as the Holy Spirit moves among us this morning, I would ask God that you just convict every heart here that if a person has never surrendered their heart to Jesus that you would enable them by the power of your Holy Spirit to do it right now. Or if a person has been slipping away from you and, and going down the wrong road, this, this person may have surrendered to you at one point in their life, but now they're starting to drift away. Now they have their eyes focused on something else. Lord God, grab them by the scruff of their neck and point them back to your cross.